Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing charity reserves. Yes, we're going to be chatting to the Chief Executive of the charity finance group, Karen Bradshaw, to find out what impact the pandemic has had on reserves and what her advice is for charities that want to keep them robust. And later on in the show, we'll be bringing you our good news bulletin of positive or quirky news stories from the past week. Yep, and there's going to be some good stuff on today. I'm excited about this one. (laughs) So... The simplest way to explain reserves is to think of them as the money a charity sets aside for a rainy day. Although, as I'm sure we're going to hear, that description might be a little bit too simplistic. Right, but to carry on the analogy a little, it has been raining quite a bit over the past 18 months. Sure has. Many charities have experienced rising need at the same time as fundraised income has plummeted. And this would be or would seem to be the obvious situation in which to dip into that money that you've stashed away. This is the rainy day. Absolutely. So previously on this show, we have talked about the Respond Recover Reset Project, the research project by the National Council for Voluntary Organisations with Nottingham Trent and Sheffield Hallam Universities. In March this year, Respond Recover Reset published the results of a snapshot survey of 600 organisations, and it included questions about charity reserves. The survey found that two in five voluntary organisations reported having six months of reserves. Now, that's generally considered to be a healthy figure. But 46% of organisations said they had had to use their cash reserves to cope with the impact of their pandemic. And almost 10% of survey respondents said they either have no cash reserves or not enough to last them a month. So research published by the accountancy firm BDO in July last year found that, on average, charities have just two months of operating expenditure and reserves. That's down from three months in 2017. Right. And, you know, for a long time, there's been this idea in the sector that charities should be aiming to keep the equivalent of three to six months worth of reserves um, sort of on standby. Effectively, enough money that if your funding disappeared overnight, your charity could keep going and would have the money to cover its running costs for the next three to six months. And I think a lot of that thinking, a lot of the kind of anxiety around reserves has been fueled by the fallout from the collapse of Kids Company in 2015. One of the major Mm. elements that was perceived to have contributed to its downfall was the fact that it simply didn't have anything in reserve. When it couldn't get the funding it needed, it couldn't operate. And And actually, that all sounds very sensible on the face of it, but potentially the issue is slightly more complicated. For a start, under charity law, trustees are supposed to spend money in pursuit of their charitable aims. So hanging on to reserves instead of meeting the needs of beneficiaries can be contentious and quite difficult to do in practice. And just as many members of the public and the press, you know, rightly or wrongly resent the idea that of charities spending money on overheads or so, so-called back office spending, there is a real hostility to the idea of charities sitting on kind of vast piles of donor money like Smaug the Dragon, you know, rather than spending it on their cause. I really hope that you have at some point seen a headline that actually contains the phrase Smaug the Dragon in relation to a charity. Like, this is a very specific... <laughs> analogy and it also seems like not unlike something the daily mail might publish i think it's i don't know i don't know maybe not that particular dragon but i think it is implied that they are sort of sitting on piles of cash as though <laughs> yeah, so reserves involve replacing your desk your, like office furniture with just wads of notes i don't know <laughs> 
Okay, to get back to that kids' company case, though. So when the official receiver took the organisation's former trustees to the High Court, this issue of having charity reserves obviously did come up. It was a central point of this case. But the judge made a point of confirming the fact that having reserves was not a legal requirement. So in her judgment of the case, Justice Folks wrote that whilst not having reserves might increase the risk of failure, albeit that reserves would not necessarily ensure survival where income fell away, their absence during the charity's life self-evidently did not make its model quote-unquote unsustainable. So after the ruling, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, who is the chief executive of the Directory of Social Change, took to Twitter and she described reserves as one of the most misunderstood financial terms in the sector. She pointed out that many charities will have had to use their reserves to keep going during the pandemic. And she questioned whether or not that should actually leave them open to similar legal action. Now, I think that's a really interesting point. As Alcock Tyler pointed out, it's not going to be easy for charities to build their reserves back up again. So does that mean that trustees should just close the charity down in case something goes wrong to protect themselves from prosecution? It sounds like a real can of worms to me. Absolutely. And in the aftermath of the Kids Company decision, the Charity Commission did slightly amend its reserves guidance to say that trustees ought to think about retaining money to prevent unplanned closures. But that has been seen as quite broad and vague and we're still not really sure what what is meant by that. So all of this leaves us then with a number of questions. How much should charities aim to keep in their reserves? When do they smash open that piggy bank and dig into their reserves? And how has the pandemic actually affected charities' reserves and the ways that they are viewed? To answer some of these questions, I spoke to the chief executive of the charity finance group, Karen Bradshaw. Karen, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. My pleasure. Really lovely to see you again and hear from you. Um, So yeah, so this week, obviously, we're talking about reserves. And I just wondered, from your point of view, what impact has the pandemic had on charity reserves? You know, are we seeing kind of more charities dipping into their reserves? You know, what effect is it having? Well, if you don't mind, let's step back one step and think about what Mm. reserves are, because I think that's part of the problem is that going into this, there was kind of like an urban myth that, that, uh, charities should keep sort of three to six months of operating costs what are operating costs what it, what do you call what do you include within that that sum uh, and an assumption that all charities have the same needs of their reserves so to answer your question with a simple answer is probably not as straightforward as it might seem <laughs> uh, having said that so let's let's think about what what are reserves reserves are monies that you hold back. And actually, the law requires you to spend your money on your charitable objectives. So what you hold back, you've got to hold back for a good reason. So having this sort of three to six months operating cost doesn't, it sounds a bit arbitrary, a bit blunt. Whereas actually, what we really want people to do is think about why are they holding on to money? Why are they not spending that money right now? So if you then do the that and think about the sort of post pandemic in that context, then you start Mm. to unwind what has happened to reserves. So for some charities, they won't have touched their reserves. They might have even increased their reserves. For other yeah. charities, they may have completely and utterly obliterated their reserves. Some charities may not have even had reserves coming into the into the pandemic. So I think what we have certainly seen is that there has been what we have called a strategically negative impact on reserves. And by that, I mean that the things that your reserves were there to help you do have not been the things you've been able to use your reserves for. 
for many people, they've been dipping into those reserves to just keep the, the show on the road um, or to transform very quickly into online delivery, whereas they were doing things face to face previously. So the things that they'd put reserves aside for have probably not been what they've spent their reserves on over the last 12, 18 months. Okay, well, that makes sense. But so to go back to this, this kind of urban myth, as you put it, about the three to six months reserves, yeah. and that that's not necessarily right for every charity. How should charities then work out what is a sensible level of reserves for them, um, given you know, particularly that we do have a bumpy road ahead? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the starting point is understanding your business model. What is it that you actually do? How are your income streams generated? What are the sensitivities in them? What are the risks that you're safeguarding against? I think people tend to think of reserves as being the money you stick away for a rainy day. And actually, that's really, mm. that's kind of very simplifying the, 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 the conversation that you ought to be having within your organisations. It's much more about what are your risks and how do we safeguard? How do we put aside some money that enables us to, to safeguard against those? What are our plans going forward? So if you know, for example, that you're going to need to, I don't know, replace a helicopter or you're going to need to um, invest in a new CRM system or whatever it might be, that is something that you might be putting away money for, for you mm. to be able to do that development work in the, in the future. So at the moment, the monies that people hold probably are based on a set of policies and assumptions that had nothing to do with the pandemic. And as yeah. I said in my answer to my previous point, the monies may well have been spent on something completely different to what you'd originally decided to hold on to them for. So I think what charities need to be doing right now is saying, what do we need for the next 12 months? What do we need for the next sort of three, five years? And what are the big things that we're going to need to invest in or do something about? And how can we how can we fill that that void? And what role does reserve or what role do the reserves play in meeting those different needs? So to go back to this this question about impact, then, are there any broad trends that we can see in, in how charities have used the reserves, the attitudes they have to them and that sort of thing? The simple and blunt answer is they've gone down. You know, for an awful lot of charities, they've gone down. If you look at the charity commission's information, you can see that both on their report that they did about trustees, you know, they do this regular research with trustees. It was clear from the answers from those trustees that a quarter of charities were um, reduced were, were dipping into their reserves. If you look at the information that comes into uh, play from the sector, um, observers, commentators, researchers, you can see that most charities are saying that their reserves have gone down. Um, mm. I think an awful lot of organisations that have restructured have potentially used some of their reserves or they've liquidated some of their assets in order to try and balance those those needs and those competing um, requirements of the organisation. So I think I think the kind of broad basic level is they've gone down for an awful lot of organizations yeah. i think that's the basic trend there will be some outliers as i said right at the beginning yeah for whom their their reserves look like they've gone up or they have indeed gone up and that can be for a whole range of different reasons so yeah yeah i think the general trend is they've gone down um, and charities have had to use them in order to keep the show on the road or to pivot, as I said, the service provision from what they were used to doing in the, in the pre-pandemic normal to trying mm. to navigate the storm of this pandemic. And I suspect for some, thinking about putting in place the foundations to organise their organisations for the future and the life post-pandemic, whatever that pans out to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, is that necessarily, you know, the fact that so many charities have dipped into their reserves, 
is that as much of a concern as as it sort of as it can get made out to be perhaps or 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 is it sort of a just a this is this is where we are so so i think i think my gut says it is something to be worried about when the charity commissioner telling you that for uh, the the number of charities that came that were on the position of no or negative reserves has gone up from 8% to 28% or 9% to 28% over the course of a year. That is something I think for us all to take a deep breath and go, oh, what does that mean? And I don't mean from the perspective of the um, maintenance of the institution of charity, because frankly, we're not Mm. here to perpetuate and keep our our organisations going. For me, the, the alarm bells ring because that equates to potentially fewer people supported less services provided, charity need not met. Um, and that, mm. that for me, is, is the bit that worries me. I think it also says that we are in perhaps a, 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 a not an existential problem, but there is definitely structural fragility in the system. You know, those organisations that didn't have reserves coming into this may well have had to just stop what they were doing. Um, those organisations that have seriously dipped into their reserves in order to keep the show on the road still have the same reasons and needs potentially that they had pre-pandemic, but now don't have the money to address that. So there's a real fragility there in the system that worries me. Um, And there is no obvious way for us to fill that gap, because although we have reopened and income is starting to come back, is there enough income coming back that's going to give us the surplus to rebuild those reserves? So have we sucked Mm. a bit of resilience out of the sector? Are grant makers who've been fantastic during the course of the pandemic in supporting those organisations in delivering, are they going to be happy to give out a little bit extra so that reserves can be rebuilt? Um, you know, mm. I'm not I'm not entirely sure they are. And I certainly think from lo- local and central government, you probably will find that that's not the case. They're going to be not particularly happy. You know, we know on previous data that we were subsidising the delivery of public services. So to think that we are going to suddenly result, receive not just enough to deliver those services, but more so that we can rebuild our reserves, I think is probably um, a, a thin a thin hope. Well, given that it was difficult enough to get core funding exactly. as opposed to just like, yeah, just project funding exactly. previously, then yeah, funding that you're not even going to spend seems to be a big ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think for a lot of organisations, they may well have underinvested in some of that core structural stuff pre-pandemic. You know, we, we've had mm-hmm. this narrative of pence in the pound to the front line for such a long period of time that that is an incentive for people not to invest in their core um, needs, you know, their operations. And so if, if that's now coming back to bite us because we have underinvested in our digital or we've underinvested in, in the structure processes and systems that support the delivery of charitable activity, then that's all just been tested to the max. And we now don't have the money to throw at it to make it. Um, catch up that lost space. And the other bit that worries me about about where we find ourselves is that it took us over 10 years to get over the financial crash um, and to get Mm. back to a level of kind of normality, to use that word again. Um, And that was without us having completely hammered our reserves. We didn't see the same sort of hit on the structure and the and and all income sources that you saw in the in the crash. That didn't happen. Um, That Mm. has happened in the pandemic. It's been across the board. So, yeah, I do worry about it. Yeah. And you know, I guess what would your advice be for charities who are kind of weighing up like at this point, should we should we be going into our reserves? Should we be building them up? Like what should charities be doing to try and deal with this? 
So I think people need to to go back to that basic point at the beginning. What are you holding reserves for? You know, the reserves are not there to be preserved. The reserves are there to help you deliver your charitable objectives. And that may be about um, breaching a gap. It might be about filling a hole or, or picking up a contingency or making an investment. So that hasn't changed. We still need to sit down and say, what do we need this money for now? And once you know that, you may actually find that the sums of money you were holding on to were more than you actually needed. You know, we've tested every single avenue in one go with this pandemic. So there may be some assumptions we made pre-pandemic that we can let go of in the current situation. Um, And so that would be my first thought is to sit down and say, what are our risks? What are our business models like? What are our income streams? What are our sensitivities? And what do we need? What role do reserves play in that? Then, of course, you've got the challenge of how do you then build up the reserves. Um, And I Mm. think that is going to be an answer that I can't give you because I don't think there is a simple one to it. It may be about us really starting to test the assumptions that we've made previously in bids. So I think we have tended to be really focused on delivering stuff and not necessarily thinking about full cost recovery. And whilst that might sound Mm. a very sort of turgid, accounting, boring piece, you know, it really is essential. If we don't cover our costs, we are subsidising the delivery of services. And whilst that is absolutely necessary, sometimes it doesn't give you the ability to rebuild that structure so that you can carry on delivering for beneficiaries in the future and not just now. So I think that's part of it is thinking, really testing out some of the thinking that we've put into some of the bids and things. I think as a sector, we need to get really much less squeamish about investing in that process, infrastructure, systems, than we have done to date. Let's drop this golden pound thing. Let's stop talking about, you know, the pence in the pound to the front line. It may be what consumers say they want, but it's a proxy. And whilst we continue to give that proxy rather than thinking about actually what we're doing and what what the best ways of talking about the impact that we have are, we will we will never break free of that ratios question. And we need to. We certainly need to in, in, mm. in the current environment. So I think there are some building blocks there that we need to really lean into and and question. And that would that would help, I think, some of these questions. Also for grant makers, you know, let's be a little less mm. squeamish about core costs. <laughs> you know, uh yeah. we need we need to have those core costs because we can't change the world unless we have that real solid infrastructure behind us. Dame Julia Cleverly said at our annual conference of years, annual dinner a few years ago, you can't change the world if you don't balance the books. You know, and, and that mm-hmm. is so true. So we need to have that support that isn't just about the shiny frontline stuff. It needs to be about the, the nuts and bolts and the operational too, because it's just as important. That's so interesting. I feel like that pence in the pound conversation comes up in so many areas as just being so incredibly unhelpful yeah. and a real millstone around charities next in so yeah. many different contexts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting to see it cropping up here as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it is a millstone. I think that's a perfect description for it. And in terms of uh, Charity Finance Group itself, do you have any guidance or anything that people can look to uh, to find out a bit more about how to deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we have uh, what I would call an oldie but a goodie publication uh, called Beyond Reserves that we've done with partners. And we're in the process of looking at updating that. So do look out for that. Uh, And of course, if you're a CFG member, there's loads of helplines and other support on our website for people to to deal with this area. Great. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. My pleasure. My pleasure. (laughs) 
Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we have spotted in the sector. Um, And we are going on a journey today, Rebecca. Yes, we are. And the story is very close to my heart because it involves mopeds. And I I like mopeds. I used to have a moped. And uh, it also involves swearing. And I love (laughs) swearing. Um, Or just rude and funny place names. Hang on, you used to have a moped? I did used to have a moped. Oh, I had no idea. As a teenager. (laughs) I love the idea of you riding around on a moped. I can't imagine you do it in like, you know, in in a proper 50s style. Do you have a little round helmet with like one of those visors that flips up and down? Yeah, I mean, I had one the kind of like the sort of official safety one. So it was it wasn't like this. It had like the chin strap. It was more it was more white power ranger than than like, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, mods or anything, (laughs) uh, if we're honest. Um, but yes, so this uh, story is uh, Paul Taylor from Wantage in Oxfordshire, who is making a charity fundraising trip in memory of a friend who died of cancer. And he's doing it on a moped. And he thought about it. And instead of doing, you know, John O'Groats to Land's End or, you know, all of that kind of thing, um, he wanted to do something similar, but with a bit of a twist. Uh, so he's decided to visit all the rude and funny place names he can find um, in the UK. Uh, in memory of this friend. Uh, So his journey will begin in Shitterton in Dorset uh, and will take in locations such as Twat in Orkney and Booze in the Yorkshire Dales. Oh my gosh. There's also, I believe, the town of Dull, um, which is, uh, by the way, paired with Boring in Oregon. No, you're joking. Yeah, the town of Dull is paired with Boring. uh, That's in Perth. Uh, Perth and Kim Ross and that's, uh, yeah. There's also a place called Pity Me in Durham. Oh no. Um, Yep. Uh, with the neighbouring hamlets of Crazy's Hill and Cockpole Green near Reading as well are also on the list. This sounds like an iconic tour. Yeah, he's also doing sort of street names. So there's uh, the Knob in King Sutton, Butthole Lane in Shepshed, uh, which I think was in the news a few years ago because a couple had to leave because they couldn't get pizza delivered um, because people were like, oh yeah, yeah, Butthole Lane. Yeah, okay, <laughs> sure, sure, that's where you live. Um, he's also going to Titty Ho in Rounds, Northamptonshire. Amazing. So yeah, so he's doing this for uh, the Institute of Cancer Research and uh, we'll be recording his progress on social media. And I just think this is wonderful. Um, not least, it just feels like such a lovely celebration of weird English place names. Absolutely. This is fantastic. And I now want to go and visit all of these places i mean i'm just having a look on this story like the sandy balls new forest holiday park certainly sounds as though it would be worth dropping in there it does indeed (laughs) this is brilliant um so this is making me think of because there's another place that um kind of occurred to me that has a rude word in it but people don't really think of oh, it. Oh, one for the itinerary. One, one for the, the itinerary. itinerary. So um, then I only this, so I have this memory of being about six. We're talking, you know, mid-90s. The internet is sort of just starting to be a thing. And um, I remember my dad saying to my mum that Scunthorpe County Council's website had been blocked by Google because of the rude oh. word in Scunthorpe. <gasps> I'm going to give people a little oh, second no. there to do that maths. Uh, um, and yeah, as I say, I was about six and... Um, I, being quite precocious, I said, what's the rude word in Scunthorpe? Oh, no. Yeah. And my mum panics. And she goes, Thorpe. Thorpe is a really, really rude word, Rebecca. And I don't ever, ever want to hear you say this. Okay? And oh, I was like, no. Oh, wow. Okay, I won't. I thought it was going to be because scun sounds like scum. And my mum gave me a really funny look at that point, which I now realise was her <laughs> going, oh, yeah, that would have been easier. That would have that would have been a better lie. Um, so to this day, when people tell me they are going to the theme park, Thorpe Park, Thorpe Park I was going to say. A bit of my brain goes... <laughs> like I, I properly giggle at it because I'm, yeah. 
Um, oh my god! What did you think happened in Thorpe Park when I've you were no like idea. a year? I've no, I just, I just oh. thought it was very fun. I thought, it, I thought it was one of these weird place names. Uh, <laughs> but no, it turns out Thorpe Park completely innocent. Scunthorpe, not so much, and me not so much anymore. <laughs> Hopefully, Google has like corrected that now. Yes, with any luck. Well, best of luck to Mr. Taylor on his moronic moped marathon, as he yeah. has titled the trip. Yes, there's a lovely picture of him with his dogs and he says apparently even his spaniels think he's nuts. So yeah, best of luck to him. Do we do we have anything else on the books for today? Uh, we do indeed. Uh, the RNLI has appointed its first female coxswain. So the coxswain is the sailor who's in charge of uh, the ship and the crew. And um, women have previously held the role at the RNLI in a volunteer or part-time capacity. But she is the first full-time coxswain in uh, the charity's nearly 200-year history, uh, which is awesome. Um, so that's uh, Di Bush at the RNLI in Harwich. So she has been um, a full-time mechanic since 2017, and she will take over as coxswain in September. Sue Kingswood, the Inclusion and Diversity Manager at RNLI, said, we are working hard to create a more diverse RNLI, and a crucial part of that is encouraging women into search and rescue roles. Across our organisation, the more role models we have, which represent a greater breadth of diversity, the more successful we will be in our core purpose of saving lives at sea. Di is a trailblazer in this regard and for some years now has been an inspiration to other women both within the RNLI all those thinking about joining the charity. So yeah, amazing to Di blazing a trail there and yeah, good luck on the high seas. I'm sure she's going to do an absolutely smashing job of it. That's all from us this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>